I reckon imposter syndrome avoids you being a narcissistic, self-absorbed <laughs> arsehole. <laughs> it's not a DSM-5 diagnostic and statistic manual of mental disorders, although some people argue maybe it should be. I don't think it should be in the DSM because it is not pervasive like depression that permeates all areas of your life. I have had multiple occasions in my life where I've had imposter syndrome. I believe you have as well. That's right, Andrew, but they are very contextually based. Joining me today to discuss imposter syndrome is leading clinical neuropsychologist, neuro-researcher and best-selling author, Dr. Nicola Gates. Nicola has worked in brain and cognitive health and well-being for over 25 years, and Nicola has published dozens of peer-reviewed research papers. She makes regular media contributions for print, radio, and television. I wanted to pick up on the sex bias. I know there are suggestions that, in fact, men have it at the same rates as women, but I query that. For many women, and also, I guess, for minorities, it's linked to identity threat and or being in a context that is inhospitable to women. For the Superman and, and other people, when they find themselves in that position where other people recognise them of having capacity and they don't, it's because they've often been praised for the outcome rather than thinking of the process to get somewhere. The classic thing that, you know, kids do a painting and, and parents might say, oh, that's a lovely picture of a, of a car. Usually the child says, no, it's an elephant. So you've already, you know, you've struck out straight away. Here's a question slash agitation for you. Yeah, I get all that, Nicola. But you don't understand. If I don't get the meters, make the tackles, do the setups, I'm not going to be selected in the team. I'm not going to have the job. How do I balance that? Okay, so that's when you have to unpackage all the things they carry within them to, to the outcome. Optimise performance through adapting your physical, psychological and emotional state. Hey, it's Andrew, and welcome to another edition of the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. Joining me today to discuss imposter syndrome is leading clinical neuropsychologist, neuro-researcher, and best-selling author, Dr. Nicola Gates. Nicola has worked in brain and cognitive health and well-being for over 25 years. She is an engaging speaker, and Nicola has published dozens of peer-reviewed research papers. Nicola translates complicated theory and research as a consultant to government services and private corporations. She makes regular media contributions for print, radio and television. On top of this, she's a regular presenter for Stride Stronger. I've done multiple webinars, conferences, coaching consignments with Nicola, and she's the go-to person whenever I've got a question, neuropsychology, psychology, and performance of the brain. Dr. Nicola Gates, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Andrew. I'm looking forward to this morning. So am I. Talking about imposter syndrome. Now, we could do this and go, Nicola, here's the research. Here's what other people have, but we're going to get real and gritty on this. I have had multiple occasions in my life where I've had imposter syndrome. I believe you have as well. That's right, Andrew, but they are very contextually based, don't you find? Yeah, well, it also explains why you've got five degrees. I can remember <laughs> saying this in one of our programs. I get it now. Here's a rough frame for us today. Number one, we'll look at the definition of imposter syndrome and some of the characteristics. Number two, me and you, let's get in there. Let's talk about our experience. Number three, what causes it and why does it show up? I think that's really important. Number four, we'll then look at different types Number five, we're going to look at how it helps. That's right. It can actually help. Uh, number six, how it can hinder. And seven, we'll look at some coping strategies and ways to manage. But let's go at the pointy end, the definition. Now, I did a Google search. I'm curious whether you're going to dispute this at the start, Nicola. Google says... In relation to imposter syndrome, it was first defined by two clinical psychologists, Pauline Rose Clance and Susan Imes, way back in 1978. They said imposter syndrome is the condition of feeling anxious and not experiencing success internally. You feel like a fraud or a phony. Do you go with that definition or do you want to add? No, I think that's perfect. So it's basically where you essentially doubt your abilities in the context that you're in. 
And that's really important because it's not a mental illness per se. So it's not pervasive. It doesn't impact you every day. Like that is not a diagnostic condition. I think we need to state that up front. So it is very contextually based. So there are these moments or periods of your career, or for me, it might be giving a presentation. So very sort of very defined limits where you are up there doing something, you doubt your abilities, you have a panic attack or something. So even though you might be successful uh, and you've achieved a lot, that situation, you're not experiencing that success. So you're not backing yourself, you're mm. doubting yourself. I think it is important that you did highlight it's not a DSM-5, Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, although some people argue maybe it should be. Now, when you look at the characteristics, Nicola, uh, a really good article about the origins of imposter syndrome, which was by Dynamic Transition, shows that some of the characteristics include self-doubt, it happens more to high achievers. There's a tendency to deny the ability and the success due to work. People think it's due to luck, mistakes, or contacts. Uh, there's a discounting of praise. There's a feeling of fear and guilt about success. There's a big one. This is what I've had, a fear of being discovered as a fraud. Uh, he doesn't or she doesn't really know what they're talking about. Not feeling intelligent or smart enough, there's a big link to perfectionism. And this is an interesting one, overestimating others while underestimating yourself. Well, that's right. It's the assumption that other people know more than you and you're always playing catch up. And I think we need to also say at this point that it's completely subjective. So it's how you feel about yourself. But you can't have imposter syndrome if you're just starting a new job or you're just at early entry career point. It is peculiar to people who have actually achieved a lot of success or have done something amazing. And even though they've done that, they haven't attributed to themselves the skills and the capacity. So you can see that this overlaps a little bit with Carol Dwight's work. So you're always second guessing yourself and you haven't internalized success very well. And you're always looking at the negative. And, you know, I am one of those sort of people that does go, oh, only 95% on Wordle today. Like, you know, if I get below 95, I'm going to have a bad day because I'm the person who looks at that and goes, where's that 5%? I didn't grow up with that in my family. That's that's part of who I am. Have you done that with your kids? <laughs> mom, mom. They wouldn't call you Dr. Nicola, your mom. Hey, your two lovely children who are young adults now. I had a spelling bee today. I had a chemistry test. What did you get? I got 19 out of 20. What did you get wrong? Were you no, one of those parents? No, not at all. And um, I've done such a good job. My kids have probably gone the other way. And they go, oh, mum, you're such a loser. The way that you just invest so much in everything you do. But, you know, nothing is a problem in itself. It's all, as I keep saying this, it's contextual based. And the reason, which is relevant to a caveat, I don't think it should be in the DSM. And it shouldn't be in the DSM because it is not pervasive. And that's a fundamental thing. It's not a pervasive thing like depression that permeates all areas of your life. Hey, it's me. Just a quick note, I'd love you to subscribe to the Performance Intelligence Podcast. And I know you probably hear this on so many other podcasts and like me, you switch off. But can I ask you to please go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. And while you're there, extra bonus, leave a rating and review. That's it. Now let's get back to this week's episode. Yeah, that's a really interesting distinction. Hugh Kearns, author of The Imposter Syndrome, Why Successful People Often Feel Like Frauds. It was a great interview he did with ABC This Working Life, which is one of my favorite podcasts. And Hugh said around 70% of people occasionally feel like they have imposter syndrome. The other 30% are lying. And then he went on to say that it's really important to distinguish between the feelings and the syndrome. So that backs up exactly what you said. It's not a syndrome, it's feelings you are having. And there's lots of research. Vantage Hill Partners looked at the feeling of incompetence is very, very pertinent for executives worldwide. In fact, it's the number one fear that executives have when they're promoted is about being incompetent. And when you dig into, I don't think this is research, this is some of the pop psychology that our team found. Thank you, Luba. Celebrities, Tina Fey, Mary Angelou, Michelle Obama, and even Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks. Schultz said, very few people, whether you've been in that job before or not, get into the seat and believe today that they are now qualified to be the CEO. They're not going to tell you that, but it's true. 
Tina Fey said, the beauty of imposter syndrome is you vacillate between extreme egomania and a complete feeling of, I'm a fraud. Oh my God, they're onto me. I'm a fraud. Or I've realized that almost everyone is a fraud. So I try not to feel too bad about it. And one of the people I look up to, Michelle Obama, the former first lady, she wrote about this saying she used to lie awake at night asking herself, am I too loud? Am I too much? Am I dreaming too big? Eventually, I just got tired of always worrying what everyone else thought of me. So I decided not to listen. Right. Well, that's interesting because imposter syndrome is subjective. So it's actually not so much what other people think of you, but actually what you think of yourself, which means you can be up there as a keynote speaker because they've asked you because they recognize you have expertise in a subject and you can go, oh my gosh, these people will know more than me. That's imposter syndrome. Has that ever happened to so, anyone you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, touche. <laughs> I can think of three events. There's multiple, but for today's conversation, I'll give you three. Well, the first one is when I got the job for strength and conditioning coach with the Australian cricket team, and I was flown over to London halfway through the ashes in 2005. Jock Campbell, who was the fitness trainer for the Aussie cricket team, uh, had done his rotator cuff. I was fitness trainer for about seven years leading to that of New South Wales cricket. We'd done a little bit of job share in the one-day team, never worked with a test team, so I fly over to London, and that's the days we had Ricky Ponting, Hayden opening the batting, uh, Gilly there, Shane Warne, Glenn McGrath, just rock star team. The second time I had it was in a, in a really big way was 2016 when I sold my previous business to KPMG. And I rocked up at KPMG and I'm a partner. I've gone in as a lateral hire. Had no idea what partners do. One of my friends from Dubbo, Nicholas, said, so what do partners do? I said, oh, it's really high-end cerebral information, mate. You, you won't understand it. He said, you don't know, do you? I said, I've got no idea. <laughs> and third time was a couple of years ago when I had the first session with Parramatta, Parramatta Eels as their mental skills coach. And I'm in a room with 36 big, strong, burly men. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what am I doing here? And Nicola, while it's interesting thinking about those, while they're sort of new roles, they weren't really, because I'd been doing strength and conditioning with New South Wales cricket and in sport for 15 years. I'd been consulting for about a decade. And with mental skills, I hadn't been doing it with elite athletes but I'd been doing it with my executive clients for five years. So it's interesting, isn't it, when you reflect on that, I made it much bigger than it actually was. That's right. So you didn't take all that experience and knowledge and the skills that you already had and take them with you to those new jobs. So you absolutely were an imposter. Subjectively, you were thinking, what am I doing here? And you discounted all that rich history that you already had. Mm. Yeah. What about you? We, we, did a, <laughs> we did a podcast as part of NAB Business Fit. And have you got five degrees? Is that right? Yeah, I believe so. Okay, for, for our listeners, rattle them off. Well, no, it doesn't matter. And I know you think they've been driven by imposter syndrome. Absolutely. I agree with you. I like to feel that I have got the qualifications to have the voice. Absolutely. And that's a classic imposter syndrome. Um, so I'm not someone who can read a book and then say, oh, actually, I know something. I've got to go and get a degree to feel that I might know something. Um, but there's that trick, isn't it? Once the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. I think my imposter syndrome and it's around me actually talking in situations, particularly with my professional colleagues. And even though I've been doing my job now for 30 years, you know, I stood up at a conference. I was so anxious and I kept, you know, I was talking to myself saying, you can do it. You can stand up. You've got the right to say this. You've, you know, one of the older people in the room. <laughs> but I think it's mine comes from, and I know we're going to talk about the, the types in a second, but I think my imposter syndrome comes from that fear of of not belonging, so not feeling like you're part of the group and the risk of saying something and being spurned from the group. I didn't just go to different schools. I went to different countries because of the nature of my dad's job. So I changed countries, which meant I was the alien. I sounded funny. I looked funny because, you know, my clothes never matched the in-group. Sounded funny, looked funny, often had funny lunches compared to the other kids. So I was always on the outside and I had to work very hard to to be included. And I think that's actually the, the source of my imposter syndrome as an adult. 
What's interesting for me, knowing you, having worked with you a lot, and I send lots of people to you. Like, I, if, if I ever have a high performer who's struggling, you know, one of the spark plugs in their V8 engine is not firing, I just go, go see Dr. Nicola. She's great. And so I, I look at you in the professional context, and, and you can work with so many people around neuroscience, mental skills, a lot of the work we do together. When I first heard this, I went, huh, she's normal. <laughs> Do you think that makes you a better coach, psychologist, friend, mother, partner and everything else because you are normal? Does that help you understand human condition more? Well, we could go and have a debate about what's normal, but rather I think I'm I'm human and I definitely sh show and share my humanness. So I never sit there and make someone feel other. And like I'm this this person who who has all this knowledge and and I'm in this separate position. I I don't ever do that. I well at least I try not to. I hope I do it well enough. That sounds like a bit of an imposter syndrome comment. But I always try and include. You know what I mean? So I am. I'm not an an other. I am the same. A number of years ago, I had a great mentor, and she said to me, "Imposter syndrome is the moment just before confidence hits you. It's working out whether your experience and stories are valid." It's asking, why am I here? And that is an amazing opportunity for growth. And, I, and I've, I've taken that with me. And while I, I was sitting there in the most recent one at Parramatta, I tried to go back to that, that this is that moment of growth and confidence. But then you still think, shit, I hope I don't stuff up. What if they don't like me? God, this might kill the goal or the ambition I've got to go into mental skills. It's interesting, isn't it? Navigating that little voice. Even when you know this, it's still having that dance inside your head. Oh, absolutely. And I think I've cultivated, like you rightly say, I do have five degrees. One of my key drives is curiosity. I think they sort of curiosity, generosity and accessibility. So, you know, be curious, learn, be generous with your knowledge and your skills, like give them to other people and make things accessible. So I've tempered my imposter syndrome by those three drivers, I guess, which is what you're saying, I've tried to use it to be very, very helpful. And I like Carol Dwight's work, I've already mentioned her, about having an open mindset versus a closed mindset. And the open mindset is that you go, that you're going to learn and going to grow. And I think imposter syndrome absolutely can feed into that rather than perhaps the negative response in imposter syndrome, closed mindset, shut down, which is the negative and, and maladaptive or unhelpful version of it. And I think hopefully, you know, people listening to this podcast may realise that imposter syndrome in and of itself doesn't have to be a problem, that you can actually use it as this wonderful channel to be open and grow and, and push yourself out there. Um, and I think, I don't know about you, but with increasing age, I'm much more relaxed about, I don't have to know everything. And I just say that up front. I say to people, I gave a talk the other day to a couple of hundred professional colleagues. And I just said, look, some of you may know more than me. You know, thank you for indulging me. Share your knowledge. Like, let's let's get generous with what we know. Rather than earlier in my career with the imposter syndrome would have made me feel very threatened by that because that means you've been sprung as the fraud. Oh, you're pressing a hot button with me. I can remember doing the worst presentation I've ever done. I was 25. It was at Sydney at the Convention Centre, which is now this new massive, massive building. It was the old Convention Centre. And I was talking to 250 fitness professionals. It was at Filex, the first time I'd, I'd spoken at a national fitness conference. And I was speaking about periodization and aerobic conditioning. And I went so hard on the science because I doubted myself, my experience. I was uh, at the AIS or in Hobart. I was an assistant coach there, but I thought I had to go really hard on the science. It was awful. <laughs> Two thirds of people left the room. And looking back, I had massive imposter syndrome. You've just raised this now. I thought I had to be the smartest person in the room. I openly say now, especially when I'm working with executives, <laughs> the collective IQ has just dropped when I enter the room, but I'm not there for the IQ. I'm there to give experience and to help people navigate their bodies, their brains, you know, their diaries, their clocks, their relationships. So yeah, I've found as I've matured, Nicola, I've definitely got more comfortable with it. Yeah, and I think that's one of the key things to manage imposter syndrome is to actually say, I don't have to know everything. It's okay. And welcome that humanness. Yeah, you mentioned before that yours is a sense of belonging. And when we looked in the research around what are the causes of imposter syndrome and why it shows up, that's a big one. 
uh, it's the fear of being found out and cast out. And it often comes back when a person has been made to feel different or excluded in their younger years. And this can be around language, ethnicity, gender, religion, or physical or learning differences. I, w- I want to come back and ask you, especially around gender in a minute. It can be around social pressures, being part of a group where approval or worth is really connected to that self-worth and achievement. Family environment, of course, is a big one. Growing up with parents or other family members or carers might have put outsized emphasis on achievement or they may have been overly critical. Uh, And there's also research around this showing family expectations, overprotective parents, attribution style, low trait self-esteem, big link to perfectionism. I want to talk about that as well. So pick up on one or two of those. Yeah, thank you. I wanted to pick up on the sex bias. I know there are suggestions that in fact men have it at the same rates as women but i would i query that because most of the research i'm familiar with say men have more sex than women (laughs) (laughs) i'm just i just know when you talk about sex people tune in more sorry nicole yeah yeah well i'm not talking about well or maybe it's gender as well because but it's sex or gender both they're slightly different things but females do tend to present more often with having um, imposter syndrome than males. And KPMG, for example, did a study of of about 1,500 executives and 75% of the female executives have experienced it at some point in their careers. And I want to highlight that because, again, I've talked about it being context-based. It doesn't, it's not a pervasive thing. And for many women and also, I guess, for minorities, it's linked to identity threat and or being in a context that is inhospitable to women. And for example, you know, women working in engineering roles feel very much an imposter because the 95% of the men around them make them feel that they are aliens, imposters in that environment. So, you know, women in male dominated areas have to work at 150% to get the same amount of talk space, respect, accolade, recognition as a man working at at 70%. So, you know, there are some, I I just, I guess I want to say there are some structural and cultural factors that can be feeding into this as well. Mm. A female from a diverse ethnic group as well, that would be the even more compound, right? Yeah. And, or or male minorities, you know, they may also experience the same thing that you, you know, what are you doing? This is all, we're all white. So, you know, and you can see, and, and people from the, from minorities always report that they've got to do 150% to get the same recognition as a middling male and middling males have enjoyed dominance for a long time because it's been supported structurally and 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 that's probably why we're having so much pushback against diversity because the middling male actually now has to compete with highly capable people once they surrender their imposter syndromes they're going to be amazing if we think of the characteristics of imposter syndrome you can see how being in a, in a minority may set you up to develop it you know there is that inherent possibly self-doubt that need to strive, denying abilities, you know, it's luck, for example, you discount praise. So I, I think there's probably, like all things, it's probably quite complicated. You give me a new term today, Dr. Nicola, the middling male. Wizard, I don't know whether you're mature enough, old enough to be a middling male yet, but if I go to some research from Dr. Valerie Young, Nicola, she defines five types of imposter syndrome in her book, which is The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women and Men. I like this subtitle, Why Capable People Suffer from Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. She talks about number one, the perfectionist, two, the superwoman or superman, three, the natural genius, four, the soloist, and five, the expert. Well, you started with perfectionism, Andrew, and I guess that's the first thing that most people think about. So this is the person who never feels that their work is good enough, which often means they're very um, ineffective or they don't submit work on time. So, you know, perfectionism is problematic in the often in the workplace. And if it's, it's coupled with the imposter syndrome, you can see that people aren't really re- realising all their potentials. So their underlying fear, obviously, is of losing control. And if you unpackage that, because, you know, I am a psychologist, the thing, one of the key motivators behind perfectionism is the idea if I'm not perfect, I'm not lovable or I'm not good enough. So, you know, you can see you go down the rabbit hole, you're going to touch some really fundamental core beliefs about people. So, you know, imposter syndrome needs to be unpackaged a little bit because how you might manage it is going to vary. 
I think the other one that I guess that I think of is the expert, because by definition, other people attribute expertise to you, right? So it's not usually an individual who says, I'm the expert, I know everything. It's actually other people say, you know a lot, we're going to call you the expert, if you know what I mean. Mm. So, and I get called an expert witness for court, and I hate the term. I hate the term because to me, it means that you're not growing anymore. But uh, the expert imposter feels, again, they have to have all knowledge and all experience before doing anything. So they've probably got a closed mindset in the sense that they don't see a, a, ro- a role or a task as the opportunity to grow and have an open mindset of growth and challenge. They think of it as a threat. And so the expert feels threatened because they're scared of being criticised or not knowing anything. And they, I guess they're going to feel uncomfortable in the not knowing, which most of the world is grey. So, they, you know, that black and white, I'm either, I either know it and I'm adequate or I don't know it and I'm inadequate. Which goes back to Carol Dweck as yes. well. It's, it, it's not black or white. It's not dichotomous. It's that that openness, that growth mindset that you're going to be challenged at times, but challenge is good. It's the balance between perfectionism, wrong or right, good or bad, and healthy competition. I will make mistakes, and that's part of my learning and growth. One I'm going to pick up on is a superwoman or man. I had a conversation which led to first thinking, we've got to do this podcast, Nicola, on imposter syndrome. We spoke about this last year, and it's popped up more and more in my coaching. I've got permission to mention this young man's name. It's Reid Marnie, who is captain at the Canterbury Bulldogs. Reid was at Parramatta when I got over my imposter syndrome and realised this is part of growth and learning and development. Reid was one of the players that I worked most closely with, and I'm really proud seeing his growth. And we've done a, a podcast on this platform with Reid and Sean Lane. So you can go back and listen to that about their evolution and application of mental skills. But Reedy uh, came and saw me here at our office in the coffee shop, Nicola, where I've met you multiple times. And he's scratching around. And look, we, I still work with Reedy, even though I'm at Manly. This is all above board. I have permission. And Reedy's been made captain. So not only did he go from Parramatta to the Bulldogs, but then Cameron Sorrell, the coach, at the pointy end of the offseason, said, we're going to make you captain. So excitement, adulation. Wow, this is a dream come true for a 24-year-old young man, but still working out his craft. So he's had to shift from not just playing his game as number nine, but then overseeing 16 other people because we choose 17 in an NRL game and what they're doing. So we're in the coffee shop. He's sitting there. He's scratching around and I could see he was agitated. And after about 10 minutes, I saw he drunk his coffee really quick. I said, Reedy, what's up? He went, oh, and he just sort of, went bang, blah, blah. And he, he went for about seven or eight minutes and I didn't interrupt. And I said, mate, you've got imposter syndrome. What's that? I said, you've been promoted to captain and everyone else around you sees that you are totally ready for this role. But there's lag time. You haven't caught up yet. And you're overcompensating and thinking you have to do all this extra stuff, extracurricular activity. He's on 24-7. I said, mate, you've been sending me messages at night on weekend. You haven't been recovering, which has been a real part of your strategy. And as we went through about half an hour later, I could see he just went, so this is normal? I went, absolutely normal. And I told him about one or two of my examples. So really love your authenticity, love that you are open to learning and growing. And then he went back home, did some journaling, put in some recovery. That's a real big thing. When you find you're thinking about work all the time, if other people you think are judging you, it's all external, 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 magnifying that internal, I'm not good enough, you just get into this stress state, which he was, and he wasn't making the right decisions. He wasn't playing well. Anyway, fast track next game. He'd relaxed. He's been playing back better than he has at any time. And having that quick conversation, him having the awareness to put it into practice, it was really powerful. So I want this podcast to help with other athletes, with other corporates we both work with. But that was a real example. Do you want to give me your commentary or your thoughts on that example? Oh, I think that's so common. And it's so often, as you say, that other people recognise you and you there is that delay, and I thought that was just a, a wonderful way of expressing it, that there's that delay where you haven't yet internalised what other people see. And, you know, often we've been set up for that already about how we've been praised. And, you, I mean, you asked at the beginning about my kids. Well, we know I'm a nerd and I read everything, and even my kids now laugh. I'll, I'll say something and my son will say, 
Did you really think that hard every time as a parent before you said something? And I go, yeah, I really did think that hard. So, you know, I was thinking about closed mindset and all those sort of things. So when when we are young and we are praised for an outcome, we're not going to internalise what we carry within us in terms of our experience, our skills and our, our capacities. So that means we're probably for the Superman and, and other people when they find themselves in that position where other people recognize them of having capacity and they don't, it's because they've been often been praised for the outcome rather than thinking of the process to get some somewhere. So I guess to to think about the the classic thing that you know kids do a painting and and parents might say oh that's a lovely picture of a of a car usually the child says no it's an elephant so you've already you know you've struck out straight away I had this <laughs> Sophia came home <laughs> daddy I did this painting for you it's your favorite and I went oh darling it's beautiful it's Toby which is our dog she said no no daddy it's a lolicorn lolicorn is unicorn I'm like oh I called her really quick it's a beautiful lolicorn and then she walked away and said daddy couldn't see my painting. I'm like, oh, I felt devastated. Well, exactly. We fall into that trap. So rather than doing the outcome, what you'd say is, wow, look at the colours. Oh, look at your control. Look at your concentration. And I love the way you sat down and did that patiently. So whatever whatever it is, or, you know, at soccer, they, maybe they did score the goal. What you'd say is, wow, I like the team playing. I like the way you positioned yourself. I liked your concentration. Because then people start internalising their skills. Now, the same thing goes with elite athletes or anyone else. If you just praise or reward the outcome, people don't internalise all those things that they have that got them to that point and it makes them vulnerable. Hi, it's Angela Poon. I'm thrilled to share some exciting news about the new venture Andrew and I have been working on together. Over the past five years, we've been managing two separate businesses, andrewmay.com and strivestronger.com, which has led to some confusion in the market. So to streamline our offerings and make it easier for our clients to engage with us, we've taken the best of both worlds through our learnings over the past few years, delivering large-scale programs to our corporate clients, and we have created the Performance Intelligence Academy. Based on invaluable feedback from our clients, this new offering provides a much clearer, scalable, and more comprehensive solution. Now, our approach begins with an assessment of both the physical and psychological energy through our Live Life Score, as well as an evaluation of mental skills to establish a baseline through our mental skills calculator. From there, our performance toolbox serves as a personal coach in your pocket, providing resources and tools to enhance well-being, boost productivity, and develop leadership capacity. In this toolbox, we have engaging micro lessons on influencing, coaching, energy optimization, personal productivity, and mental resilience. Our platform offers access to engaging webinars, community pages for networking, and a wealth of templates and learning resources. In addition to our digital offerings, we also specialize in hosting engaging events, including keynote presentations and workshops featuring a diverse range of presenters to keep participants energized and engaged. If you're looking to elevate the productivity and well-being of your team, we invite you to reach out to us. Whilst our new website will be launching in the coming months, you can inquire for more information through andrewmay.com. Stay tuned for further updates. Exciting things are on the horizon. So watch this space. Here's a question slash agitation for you. Yeah, I get all that, Nicola. But you don't understand. If I don't get the meters, make the tackles, do the setups, kick the goals, lift the weight, insert, 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 get the revenue in sales, I'm not going to be selected in the team. I'm not going to have the job. So yeah, I'm hearing your girlfriend, but the performance metrics on me are so high. This is an opportunity of a lifetime. I've wanted to do this for the last 10, 15 years. How do I balance that? Okay. So that's when you have to unpackage all the things they carry within them to to the outcome. And I think I've told you this story. I had a a client, imposter syndrome, transferred, same job, different company, sort of was, was feeling very concerned that they weren't meeting their KPIs. So they had to basically catch a big fish and and it wasn't going well. And they thought, well, there goes my $20 million bonus. And it was really starting to mess with their head cause self-doubt, leading on to depression, you know, they it, it was becoming a bit of a death spiral for them. And I said, I want you to go through everything that you've done 
six months of work to catch the big fish. Anyway, they they were pushing back with me the whole time. And I was saying, well, look, this is what I'm seeing. This is what you've done. The point is they went, they got their bonus because they didn't think they would because they were only outcome focused, but their, their boss wasn't. So their direct report said, we have rec- you've made these connections, you've built relationships, you've done all these things. We're giving you the bonus because you might not catch it this year, but you'll catch it next year. And so for them, they absolutely pushed back on everything I was saying. And so I just had to patiently work stealthily to get them to internalize everything that they were doing. Did you say, the fact check, $20 million bonus? <laughs> I did indeed. <laughs> have you ever thought in your practice, as I have thought in my practice, Dr. Nicola, rather than charging someone an hourly rate, we should go a success fee on percentage of bonus? Oh my goodness, you'd be on your yacht now in your podcast studio in the Mediterranean. Oh, I don't know about that. No, everyone's driven by different things, Andrew. So it's just me. I'd need to come and see you another, <laughs> another time. Hey, another Nicola, not you. Nicola Andrews, who's a noted Indigenous and library science expert, has been quoted as saying, we are quick to diagnose ourselves and others with imposter syndrome when we doubt or devalue our everyday work. I have yet, however, to encounter one single person who claimed to have what they call imposter syndrome. Legitimately, it's a common and regular occurrence to engage in self-doubt and insecurity to some degree. I would agree with that, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if people necessarily say, I've got this, or for whatever their motives. The thing to do is think about how is it serving you? That's the most important thing. Is is saying that you've got imposter syndrome diminishing your capacity to grow, to thrive, to be your best self, or do you use it as a way to, to manage anxiety? Like, you know, you might be anxious and you go, well, this is my imposter syndrome, so I've got to manage it. And you use that term in a way that's adaptive and helpful. So words are only words. The thing I always ask or invite people to consider is how's it serving you? Our words are our servants. How are they serving us? Are they helpful or unhelpful? When I mentioned before that example with Reedy and lag time, that's closely linked with confidence. And confidence, when we talk about that as a mental skill, is twofold. One, it's doing the work. And then two, it's backing yourself when the opportunities arise is a lot of what we're talking about catching up with that confidence, growing into that confidence. Because if I think about the three examples, and again, this is N equals one, but then when I look at lots of other people I work with, and I know mine is at the pointy end on business, executives, and sports, so it may be a little bit nuanced or skewed, but a lot of them really are about catching up with the opportunity. As you correctly pointed out, I'd been doing each of those roles for a number of years. I just had to catch up with myself. Which is why I said to you often it's contextually based. So we're, we're reading a situation as being novel when in fact it might not be, which is part of the definition in the sense that you haven't internalised that your previous success and matched it perhaps to the context. So yes, there is a catch up, which is why it's recognised as not being a pervasive condition. So you can catch up there and then you might find yourself in another role doing something different or you might be in in another context and experience it again. So absolutely. I find for myself that my imposter syndrome is very much around talking to certain audiences. So there are some audiences I'm completely comfortable with, but other audiences, the imposter syndrome comes up really high, even though I've been talking for you know 30 years, providing education, information, entertainment, only that, so some audiences trigger it for me. So it's that notion that I don't know enough for this audience. You've got me intrigued. Is it academic audiences? Yeah, absolutely. One of the frameworks when you understand academics, it's not right or wrong, but one of the frameworks is you are looking at holes in other people's research. So when you write a paper, when you do a PhD, not only are you showing something new, but you've got a whole bunch of other people trying to disprove your theory. I I, I get that if you've been an academic and only hang out with academics, that you could have that running deep, but you work across multiple industries. Why does that still show up for you with academics? I think I know where you're going with this. <laughs> Andrew thinks because my dad is a world-renowned 
scientist um, who's got basically every accolade you can have except the Nobel Prize as part of the reason. No, he's the reason I'm curious and generous. Um, I only asked you an open-ended question, my friend. I, I wasn't having any projection. So it's it's my own professional colleagues, but you know it is diminishing because I'm looking around the room now and going, oh my goodness, you know, I'm starting to. I still actually feel like a person twenty years younger than I am, but I'm very aware now that I am in the older group in the uh, in the room now when I do those those presentations. Experienced, mature. Okay, don't use words like that. You, you, I don't use words like that. How would you coach yourself on this? It's an interesting one, right? If you went to you or someone like you, you would be difficult to coach. Here's why. And a lot of our audience are difficult to coach. Here's why. When you have the knowledge, you've got the education. So we call that self-awareness. But when you don't actually do it, that's self-regulation. Closing that gap between awareness and regulation is where you and I spend a lot of our time and expertise, especially at the pointy end. How would you close that gap for you? to move from knowing this, having coached hundreds of people around this, impacting thousands through your books and through podcasts and the media you do, what would you coach yourself around? All right. I would start with fleshing out that awareness to to check out the internalisation of, of what's already been achieved um, because that's that's one of the really important things, I think. And I mean, I actually have a touchstone. My husband bought me a touchstone. It's a bracelet because she says, getting embarrassed even saying this, I, my, for my PhD, I had no changes, right? That's completely unheard of. It's you submit a PhD, you have to make changes, you resubmit it. That's, I had absolutely, I had no changes on, on a 80,000 word, whatever PhD. Um, so much so that I, the, the Dean of Medicine called me up because it's, Basically, it doesn't happen. Why am I telling you this? And I am telling you this uncomfortably, but my husband thought, well, that's right. And I have got a bracelet that's a bit like a handcuff and I can't take it off. And that's my touchstone. So I would be encouraging me to actually look at that and say, you got that for a reason. So back yourself. And so that awareness, acceptance and letting go. Thank you for sharing. Can I ask you one more question? Sure. You can ask me anything. I don't have to answer it. <laughs> it would be so much easier. Let's stick to the script, Andrew. What is imposter syndrome? How does it show up? Why do you feel uncomfortable talking about that? Well, that's a sign of imposter syndrome too, in case if you, you know, if you look at all the notes we had beforehand, people who deflect praise and and um, things like that. Well, I guess I'm also, I'm humbled by it as much as astounded by it. I didn't think I I mean I had an amazing generous professor, and I never doubted her ability. So between her efforts and and mine, I'm I'm not going to say it was luck or fluke, because she was walked with me, and I I worked really really hard. So I guess I still got a little work to do there, haven't I, Andrew? You've just seen an Achilles. Achilles, I love our conversations, Nicola, and <laughs> you sharing that for people who are listening to this. I think the big takeout is, yeah, you can teach this, you can research this, you can have PhDs in this. We all dance with it. And it's not a bad thing. It's when you acknowledge it, it can actually help. It can actually fuel you. And in fact, with my um, colleagues that I spoke to last week, the person who invited me to do the presentation recognised that I had expertise. Anyway, and I said to her, you know, I've got imposter syndrome. She goes, oh, my God, can you actually say that? Can you, because this is for early entry neuropsychologists, if they see you, someone in 30 years, and you say, I've got imposter syndrome, this is how I manage it, that will just make it so much easier for them. So, yeah. You said that? I said that. What was the response? Oh, it was an, oh, my God. Like, if you've got it, us, the rest of us, how do the rest of us feel? And then I said, well, you just have to manage it. And they said, well, if you've got it and you do these things, then clearly it's manageable. Like I'm a good example of someone who's managed imposter syndrome and still done stuff. So having that awareness is really important. And yeah. then knowing how to manage it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one thing I've learned as well is you know it's there and then you have a strategy around it. Around Absolutely. It. But mm. when you doing that, not only normalised it, you gave those young men and women a fast track 
to, to being the best versions of themselves, a fast track to, to knowing how to navigate this. Because it doesn't come. You can go and do a degree in neuroscience, but it doesn't mean you have a master's in regulating your emotions, your feelings, That's your right. internal circuitry. So we'll get the hot seat off you and let's go to the next point, how it can actually help. Wharton researcher Basima Tufik says imposter syndrome, it's not always good, it's not always bad. It's a much more complex phenomenon than it has been represented to be. That said, I regularly use it to help me with new roles and new situations. Exactly. And most of the time, I think it's been helpful to me rather than a hindrance to me. And that's because I've counterbalanced it. And but with the notion of being curious, so driven to learn, curious, generous, share what you know, I think that for me has been tempered. And I invite other people to think how they're going to temper it to make it helpful. And I think that, you know, generally the therapy models are firstly recognize that it's there and and think about how you can make it helpful. I think that's the first point. And, you know, as I said, you've got to start internalising things. So that's about rewriting your mental program. Mm. I've got two branches to go. One is my own thoughts on what you don't want to be. The other one is the HBR research around the advantages of imposter syndrome. Do you want to go HBR first or do you want me to give you my country, New South Wales, Dubbo upbringing overview? Oh, listen, you share your stories, Andrew. They're always good. I reckon imposter syndrome avoids you being a narcissistic, self-absorbed asshole. <laughs> I, I oh, can give you the research. Don't, I can don't, give beat, the... A, don't beat about around the bush, will you, Andrew? No, you know me. But uh, uh, do you agree, though? They can see if, if, if people don't have that self-awareness and they don't have that humility and they don't have that vulnerability that you showed before and – Watching this, you could actually see you did go a different colour and you you looked at me and you paused. It was like, yeah, you were asking me a real question. It was lovely. Yeah, oh. I was a bit like the rabbit in the headlights, but no one can see that I looked down and sat back. I mean, I was very aware that my whole being kind of did this whole shrink back then. You changed your whole physiology. Yeah, they, people couldn't see that. So I know you have this idea that it's, you know, basically could keep you imposter syndrome can keep you humble and not overconfident do you agree with that disagree with that i think imposter syndrome is i'm just for example i'm thinking of my son who is wonderfully humble and generous and exceedingly laid back but internally very very confident and he hasn't got imposter syndrome so you i don't think you can be that without having imposter syndrome so I don't think it's either or. What I'm saying is that there's this very healthy group at the middle, like my son, and then I hang off the side with the imposter syndrome, and then you get the people who are really, really confident to the extreme, as you say, those other words that I'm not even going to say. Yes. Okay, here's one for you. Have you ever seen imposter syndrome show up when you're working with me? Have you ever seen me manifest behaviours, thoughts, characteristics around having imposter syndrome because you know me well yes i have and i had to give you a kick at the proverbial because you were recently did a big talk in the us and when i spoke to you is this the i don't know if this is the example you're thinking of but no, when it's I not the kick going this is now i'm shrinking and getting all warm <laughs> and turn the air conditioner on the studio whiz yeah yeah, no, it was just how you were talking about it afterwards. And I found myself, you know, I was reminding you of all the things you've done. And I was saying, don't think of the audience as whatever, 100,000 people in the audience. I was uh, I was asking you to, to to reduce that scope as so that you didn't fall into that heap. Because I, I could tell that you were just skating on the edge of a little bit of that lovely lift of, of I'm in a high stress situation. And you were just on the edge of perhaps being overwhelmed by it. Yeah, I was. Was it why have a performance coach or a psychologist or a neuros neuropsychologist when you can dial in with Dr. Nicola? I remember <laughs> that, and I didn't even think about that in preparation for this interview. So context. Earlier this year, did a keynote. It was a thirty-minute keynote for a launch of a global SaaS a software company. Uh, eight and a half thousand people in the audience, and I was there for thirty minutes. And it, it was one of those moments where it's total step up. I've done fifty presentations a year for the past fifteen years, I've, and and multiple online. I would have done over a thousand presentations in different formats, but I was there, and I was I was thinking that what am I here for? They should have someone like Anthony Robbins. I don't speak in rooms like this. Are my hands big enough? I don't have big hair, big white. Teeth. An American. It was really interesting. Yeah. So when we when you were telling me about it, I was thinking, oh God, 
you know, the imposter syndrome's right there. And, you know, you're not American. And as you say, in your mind, you had the Tony Robbins because you actually said that. So in your mind, you're thinking, I'm not that. I'm the alien here. I'm the fraud. That's not. And, you know, so I could see that you were just in that space. Mm. So here's three stepping stones that I have thought about in relation to this. And I haven't done it consciously up until recently. I haven't told you this. I'm in the interview process at the moment to work with another sporting team. And when I walked in there a few weeks ago, and I, I could feel it, hey, I don't have any experience playing this sport. And then I went, ah, ah, one, expecting this. So I had a bit of a laugh that it's perfectly normal to, to have this voice. So I've now acknowledged that those voices will come in. And then two, where's the evidence? I think I borrowed this off one of our conversations long ago. When you have those cognitive distortions, number one, two is where's the evidence? Well, I've been doing mental skills for 20 years. I haven't called it that. I think I got a pretty good grounding on some of the challenges that player work, players work with when I work with players around the world in this role. And then number three was this is an opportunity now to grow. The stretch is good. Discomfort is good. And, and it was really interesting going through that three-step process much quicker. So yes, I was nervous, but I didn't fishtail. I was having emotions, not getting had by my emotions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other reassuring thing is that the research shows that having imposter syndrome actually doesn't lead to a degradation in your performance. What does that mean? It means you still perform exceedingly well, even though you've got those feelings. And people often think because I've got imposter syndrome, that they, their work might decline or their performance might decline and not be very good. But in actual fact, that's not what it shows at all. A recent article in the Harvard Business Review, Dr. Nicola, says exactly that. The more oriented, the more attuned to other people's perceptions and feelings you are, it makes you more likable. In addition, Imposter thoughts don't seem to hurt performance. That's right. All right. Tell me about when it does. And this is where I really want to just ask you a question. And I'm going to sit back and learn and listen. I'm sure you have seen people where this has become detrimental to their work, detrimental to other parts of their lives where they really doubted themselves. Yeah. So as we started at the very beginning, and I love going full circle, at the beginning, I was very quick to say that imposter syndrome is not a disorder. It's not a mental illness or anything like that. However, that constant self-doubt can corrode your self-confidence, your self-esteem and self-efficacy. And those are all different terms, meaning slightly different things. But essentially, it means you're vulnerable to become anxious or depressed. And then that becomes a big problem. Do you think we've covered enough in this discussion today for people to have some strategies? So if they do feel crippled, if they do feel overwhelmed, if they do get into, we love that Yerkes Dodson inverted you hypotheses around performance and arousal or alertness, a little bit of stress is good. Yeah, too much stress is not great because it floods the system. You lose that coherence, that cognitive processing. Are there any other tips you want to give to people who really do have that higher level? Yeah, we're talking about five things to take away. We've made it a, quite a normal thing that, you know, it's quite normal to experience it at some point in your career. Recognise that you've got them. Then I'd say ask yourself, is this helpful or unhelpful? And that has to be contextually based or every time you feel you have imposter syndrome, you've got to ask yourself that question. Is it helpful? Is it unhelpful? Rewrite your mental program. What do I mean? Just think about and internalize your experiences, your success and your capacity so that you actually know that you carry that with you in all situations. If it's starting to be unhelpful, I'd, I'd always use the words helpful and unhelpful, not good or bad. But if the things start becoming unhelpful, go and talk to someone and get the support you need. Sounds so clear. Sounds so easy. <laughs> <laughs> But it's not, is it? Because we're talking to people who've got habits and beliefs and emotions and models that they've formed from a young age. And you've mentioned as well that higher propensity of this happens with women and even higher propensity in ethnic groups as well. So it's not just as easy as going, here are the five steps while I love them. Can I just pull on the thread a little bit on one of those? When you said the, re, the, the new mental model, you, you often talk about the iPhone having an iOS upgrade. Uh, how would you get some Someone to do that specific to belief where they are overcoming some of those 
background where they came from belonging. Can you go just a little bit deeper on that one? Well, I guess I have to start with the warning. As you rightly say, it sounds really easy. Any time that you invest in yourself is well worth it and you will be rewarded. However, you've heard me say this before, it's the, it's sweet tea, which is time, energy and attention. So it really does mean giving yourself the time to, to focus on the conversation you're having with yourself and start changing that discourse, you know, start rebuilding and having a different conversation. And for people who want to have a different conversation and that conversation involves you, so if they want to buy your books, uh, if someone wants to work with you, or you're doing a lot of presentations now as well. I think a, a lot of people don't know, we know you as the clinical neuropsychologist, but you do wonderful workshops and keynotes and presentations where you light up a room. How do people get in contact with you? I'm pretty easy to find I've, on my website, Brain and Mind Psychology. Brainandmindpsychology.com. That's it. Right, so if you want to get Nicola to ramp up the energy in your company if you want to get Nicola and her books go to to book Dr Nicola for one of the many ways she shows up whether it's one-on-one whether it's a group or whether it's her books or programs go to brainandmindpsychology.com Nicola last thoughts last takeout Uh, Well, it's what I always say because it's the best advice I can ever give anyone is just start with being kind to yourself. Love it. Love our conversations. Stay kind. Thanks, Andrew. Wizard, your thoughts about that discussion with Dr. Nicola Gates, your thoughts on imposter syndrome. Yeah, I was actually blown away by Nicola today. I mean, obviously I'd heard of imposter syndrome, but I didn't really know anything about it. I thought it was just, you know, some people get it occasionally and it's the worst thing and you know it's terrible. And then Nicola was like, oh yeah, I get it all the time. And I said this to her after the podcast actually, but I think Nicola's probably, and no offense to anyone else that I know, but Nicola's probably the smartest person I've ever met. I've told her this before and she's like, say, oh, you know, degrees don't mean I'm smart. And I'm like, well, that's, that's not why. I mean, I've heard her speak on a wide range of different topics and she just knows her stuff it was comforting mm. when she mentioned talking to those neuroscience students yeah comforting and i think it dislodged the students because they would have been there going oh, you're this woman who's been doing this we look up to you you've got these multiple degrees you work around the world you've written the books and you have it as well it normalized it oh yeah it would have yeah i could, could only imagine being in that room when that happened when have you had imposter syndrome now you've sat in here in the studio with us and you've got the definition we know it's not a dsm-5 classification but we know it can help you at times but it can also really hinder so when have you had it looking back on it probably when when we shifted a lot of our work to online and live streaming there was a bit of freaking out on my end about that because my a lot of my experience with it was watching people play video games online and that's where i got most of my uh, knowledge from that but i think i said to a friend of mine when he said so thomas done work in editing and podcast and video i said no no he's a gamer mm. so gamers have got all the skills was this when we were our business was totally disrupted with COVID? we lost over 90 percent of revenue mm. we went from doing live keynotes live leadership programs live coaching sessions to all online is that when you had it yeah yeah and uh, i think one thing that didn't help was one time we went to someone else's studio and they had you know five people behind the scenes and all these cameras and all this stage set up which and one then, was that oh, I, can, I can never remember the dude's name he, he, it's the one up in the, the uh, motorvale um oh that was dale beaumont dale beaumont I spoke yeah. at the national speakers association their mm. closing keynote for their conference yeah that was it yeah and i remember for ages after that, I was like, man, that's really good. And we're sitting in here, we've got three little cheap cameras and a green did you, screen. Did you, did you think we got a shitty, shitty yeah, setup? Yeah, I was just like, man, we could, could be doing so much better. We never told me this. Yeah, well. I was sitting here thinking, wow, we're doing really well. We're mm. broadcasting live around I the world. did eventually come around to that. I was like, okay, having seen other people's setups as well, I was like, okay, we're not doing too badly. And then we got better at it. And well, it is exactly what Nicola and I were talking about. You mm. were pushed out of your comfort zone. And I mean pushed because I said, Wizard, we've got to do this, otherwise <laughs> we're not going to have jobs. And then it took a while to catch up. Mm. Interesting though, towards the end of COVID, you were mentoring other people. So I think you caught up pretty quick. Yeah, and if I'm being honest, I get a bit of it with the podcast sometimes as well because, I mean, I've never had any formal training in it. And I mean, we're 100 and 
what, 110 episodes or so in at this point. So Plus you're doing podcasts for us, or we've done podcasts with Westpac, mm. now Business Fit, and we're doing a podcast for Navy as well. So it's a lot of podcasting. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we're just sort of chugging along. My biggest observation from that discussion with Nicola is I've actually come up with a framework, three steps that I didn't realize around navigating myself when I'm in those moments out of my comfort zone. So the first one was expecting the voices. And I mentioned this with that interview I had recently, to know that they would come up, or we call that those cognitive distortions. Number two, I love that question, where is the evidence? So where's the evidence that you're gonna get found out? Where's the evidence that you crap? So you can run that, but then where's the evidence Mm. on the experience I've got, why I'm in the room, I've worked with other sports. And then the third one is really stepping into it. It's an opportunity to grow and learn. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. I remember we've done videos on where's the evidence, all that sort of thing, but I think that makes a lot of sense putting it in that context. And I'll have to keep that in mind in the future when we uh, get thrown into the deep end of something <laughs> new eventually. <laughs> when I come up with the next brainwave, wizard! Uh, you can have one cognitive distortions, two, where is the evidence? You've done it before, big fella, and it's an opportunity to grow and learn. You just know that this is coming up. Mm, I don't know what it is, but it, it'll happen. Final thoughts on this episode? Yeah, it was something personal that I really took away from this was uh, when you were talking about children and, and their paintings and drawings was a couple of weeks ago, one of my nieces, they're very young, came up to me and said, here, Uncle Thomas, this is for you. And they handed me a drawing and I think, yeah, I probably said something like, oh, what a great picture of a horse, I want to say. And uh, she said, no, Uncle Thomas, that's a butterfly. And I went, oh, of course it is, Tess. What else would it be? I'll make sure to compliment the, uh, the brush strokes and the colours used and some of the glitter that's been spread everywhere. And yeah, I'll, I'll definitely be looking forward to next time I get thrown in the deep end uh, in some way by you. I don't a know what it'll be. three-step framework, Wiz. I've got my three-step framework now. I'll uh, get it tattooed on the inside of my forearm so I remember what it is. What it is. 